If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Galatians is the first book after Paul finishes the letters to the Corinthians. If you remember in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter warns us that Paul can be hard to understand. That if you're not well grounded, you can really misunderstand Paul. That's more true about the book of Galatians than it was the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, what makes it difficult is that there are a couple of, shall we say, questionable translations. Especially in Romans 10.4 and Romans chapter 14, verse 14. But the reason people have a hard time understanding the book of Galatians is that they don't understand the question. They look at the book of Galatians as if it were answering the question, now that I've been saved, should I continue to keep God's commandments? Oh no, don't do that, don't do that. But that's not the question. It's not the question. The question in the book of Galatians is how do we get saved? If you think back to the book of Romans, the first five chapters were on justification. What do we do to gain right standing before God? And the answer is we're saved by faith. Chapter 6 and following in Romans was then about sanctification. What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But with the book of Galatians, Christians approach it and read it as though it's, now that you're saved, do we continue to keep commandments? That's not the question. It is how do we get saved? What can you do to earn salvation? Not a thing. Salvation's by faith. And if you read Galatians as being, okay, you're saved, now what? You will completely misunderstand Galatians. And it will do as Peter said and lead you right away to, what does he say? Destruction. Destruction is not a good word, is it? So let's begin with a greater background in the book of Galatians than we normally do. But I'll start the same way I normally do. Who wrote Galatians? Paul wrote it. On most of the books of the New Testament, New Testament scholars fight over who wrote each book. But that's not true with Galatians. From the very earliest times, they said, yeah, Paul wrote this one. For sure, Paul wrote this one. So it's never been seriously questioned. It is written to the churches, plural, of Galatia, not to the church of Galatia. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you have seven letters to seven individual churches. This is written to a bunch of churches in the area of southern Turkey that we call today Galatia. Where did those churches come from? The answer is, these were evangelized by Paul on his first missionary journey. So we will, before we start Galatians 1, read through Acts and see how they were evangelized. But it's in North Central Asia Minor, which is what we would call today Southern Turkey. That area was settled by Gauls, G-A-U-L-S. Remember the Gauls? They were from Germany that they came over to the area in Turkey. So they settled this area in about the third century B 
before Messiah's day. Let's see, I got a number one out here. Can I please put everyone on mute? Okay, I will do that. And it was taken by Rome, conquered by Rome, made part of the Roman Empire about 25 years before Messiah was born. So it was settled by the Gauls and it was a very, shall we say, pagan place until Rome conquered it. And then they made it more pagan than it was before. <laughs> yeah. Was evangelized by Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was with him. Do you remember why Paul originally started traveling with Barnabas? That had to do with, that was Mark later who left. Mark was a relative of Barnabas. But Barnabas was well known amongst the early believers. And Paul was known as one who prosecuted, persecuted, and put to death the church wherever he found them. So when he came to Jerusalem, the people were afraid the believers wouldn't accept him, wouldn't believe that he was truly a believer until Barnabas introduced him and said, look, I know this guy. He's for real. He really met the Messiah. He's been preaching the gospel. So Barnabas would be the one who would introduce Paul to the believers and put their fears to rest that Paul hadn't really come down to kill them all. Like I said, they were evangelized by Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And let's turn to Acts chapter 13. And I want you to read about that journey. Because it will let you know why the issues in the book of Galatians arise. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 14. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 14, verse 26. And this is that first missionary journey in Galatia. This is where these churches get planted by Paul. Have you found it? Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. First of all, why is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, going to a synagogue on the Sabbath day? As his custom, he always goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and preaches to both Jews and Gentiles. What would Gentiles be doing in the synagogue? Trying to learn from the believers, trying to learn the scriptures. What's it mean that they sat down? They sit down in the audience. Now what does a Jewish synagogue do when a visiting rabbi happens to be present? They will invite him up to speak. So they don't come in and say, everybody sit down, shut up, and listen to me, I'm taking over. They just come in and sit down. They get recognized and they get called up. That's what's going to happen. So verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel, and you who fear God. You see that phrase underlined, and you who fear God. Remember Acts chapter 10, what was Cornelius? A God-fearer. And you who fear God refer to the Gentiles. 
who are following to the best of their ability the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God that we call the Torah. And where are they? They're in the synagogue, learning God's commandments, statutes, and judgments his way. He said, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. When he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Interesting. What's, what's Paul's name? Shaul or Saul. And he said, which tribe? Of the tribe of Benjamin. It's likely that Paul's a descendant of King Saul. Because names tended to run in families. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. To me also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior. Yeshua. What does Yeshua mean? Salvation. After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, meaning I'm not the Messiah. What was John if John wasn't the Messiah? He was the forerunner. The one who prepared the way. She said, but behold, there comes one after me whose sandals, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Again, referring to the believing Gentiles. To you, the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled them in condemning him. What does Paul mean? They fulfilled the prophecies even though they didn't realize it. There were prophecies that would be crucified. Where are they? What's that? Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, Daniel chapter 9. Yeah. So many of the prophets had told us. Huh. And though they found no cause for death in him, meaning what? He was an innocent man. He had done no sin. They asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Remember last week we talked about how the cross wasn't like we think of it as a nice beautiful piece of wood fashioned by the woodcrafters into the thing that people wear as jewelry. The scripture is correctly translating the word here when they say he was hung on a tree. So the crossbar was dropped on a tree stump and he was nailed into it and laid him in a tomb. What kind of people do you put in a tomb? 
dead people. But God raised him from the dead. Oh, now there's something you got to think about. Scripture says, cursed is anyone who's hung in a tree. And yet God raised him from the dead. If he had been cursed for any sin of his own, would God have raised him from the dead? No. So whose sin did he die for? Mine. And yours. Yeah. Verse 31, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, that he has raised up Yeshua, as it's also written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's referring to the resurrection. Then he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That word mercies means blessings. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. What's that mean? He died. Was buried with his fathers. How was that done back in those days? Do you remember? They were buried in a tomb until the flesh rotted off the bones and they would collect the bones and put them in the ossuary box where your father's bones were and his father's and his father's. That's what it means to be gathered to your father's is to be put into that same stone ossuary box. And he saw corruption which meant the flesh rotted as it does after people die. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Remember the death of Lazarus. What did the people say? Surely he stinketh because it had been more than? It had been more than three days. It was on the fourth day. So Messiah was raised on the third day before the corruption would set in and the body would decay. Amazing how God arranged all this beforehand. Verse 38, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. What he's telling them here is the gospel. We're going to come back a little later and look at what is the gospel. What is the gospel? I told you we'll look at it in a minute, so. Oh, I have such impulse control problems. Verse 39, by him everyone who believes. What's that mean, who believes? Has faith. Is justified. What's justified mean? Declared not guilty, right? Set free. From all things for which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses said if you repent of your sins, you can then bring a sacrifice to God and he will atone for it. He will cover it over. But that wasn't for all sin. That was for unintentional sin. It could not atone for an intentional sin. The only thing that could atone for intentional sin is repentance. And repentance in Messiah. Verse 40, beware therefore lest what is spoken, what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold you despisers, marvel and perish. For a work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe. The one were to declare it to you. He says, don't be like the prophets talked about those people who will hear of Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection and not believe it. 
How does Paul know it's true? What's that? Yeah, he was persecuting the, the believers. But how did he know Messiah really arose? Because he, he met him on the road in Acts chapter 9. That's right. So Paul said, hey, I know for sure. I saw him. I talked to him. We had a real chat. Verse 42. We often come to Acts 13. Look at verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words, that is the gospel message, might be preached to them the next Sunday. No, it doesn't say Sunday, does it? It says the next Sabbath. Now in the congregation, it's not congregation, it's synagogue. It's the very same Greek word as in verse 42. Now when the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Yes, ma'am. I want to go back just a little bit when you... Um, you want to go back just a little bit when I what? When you said that the... Um, oh, Lord, help me. Um, when I said that the, oh, Lord, help me. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, where only certain sins were atoned for. Only unintentional sins. Okay, see, I did not know that. Yeah. Where do we find that at? You're going to find it out right here in part. Okay. As well as other places. We could go back and search through the book of Deuteronomy like we're doing on Saturdays. I have Numbers 15. Well, let's turn back to Numbers 15. <laughs> Numbers 15. Verse 25, see the very middle of the verse, the word is unintentional. It says, so the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel and shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. And then in verse 30, but the person who does anything presumptuously, which means intentionally in defiance of God, whether he's native born or a stranger, that is whether a Jew or a Gentile, makes no difference. That one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from his people. I'm so glad I was born on this side of it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and thank you, Karen, for those fill-ins. Anyway, back to verse 43. Now when, oh, in verse 42, the ending, what I was going to say is, there were God-fearers in the synagogue earlier as we were reading, right? But they were few and far between. Now, in verse 42, who's begging to be taught the next Sabbath? The whole city. Now, the Jews are going to be a very small portion. And now, if the whole city's going to come together, they're going to be outnumbered by these Gentiles. So let's read that, verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the multitudes, see that word multitudes? When it was a couple, that was okay. 
multitudes, they're going to get very jealous. They're not going to tolerate this. And that's important for Galatians. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So the week before, they were fine with what was being taught. But now that it's being taught to multitudes of Gentiles too, they're getting envious, jealous. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It is necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves so unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. This is in Galatia. So how are the Jewish people in Galatia feeling about Paul evangelizing the Gentiles? Not very good at all. So verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Hey, Paul's quoting from Isaiah, saying that the prophets prophesied this would happen. So you shouldn't be opposing it. You should be glad for it. You should be helping. <clears throat> Wasn't making the Jews feel any better. Verse 48, now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was be being spread throughout all the region. What's that region called? Galatia. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, which is another city in Galatia. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. So again, not only are many Jewish people coming to the Lord, but many Gentiles are too. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds amongst the brethren. They're starting to tell them false teachings, false doctrines that Paul has to address in the book of Galatians. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. When a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight in your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, when people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Ooh. And Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. 
Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Sacrifice to whom? To Paul and Barnabas. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes. Why would they tear their clothes? Sign of mourning because what will God do if they start sacrificing to Paul and Barnabas? There's going to be a plague, right? So they tear their clothes. They ran in among the multitudes crying out saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things. What are the useless things? Idols. To the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. That is, he didn't force them all to follow the Torah. He said Israel is an example for the rest of the nations to learn from. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. Gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, fulfilling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these things, they could scarcely refrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. How are the unbelieving Jews going to react to this? Mm. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Why do they want to stone Paul? Out of jealousy, because so many Gentiles are accepting the gospel message and turning to the Lord. Yes, ma'am. I'm in verse 19 of Acts chapter 14. Almost to reading the history. Got six more verses or so. Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples... They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So they had appointed elders in every church, that is, all these churches they just planted in all these cities in Galatia, and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So this first missionary journey established many churches in Galatia. But the unbelieving Jews felt such envy that not only did they try and keep Gentiles from hearing the word, they actually stoned the apostles themselves to try and stop the word from being spread amongst the Gentiles. That is why we have the book of Galatians. But a little more background first. It was written in approximately the year 49 Common Era or 49 A.D just before the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. So Paul wrote the book of Galatians to the churches in Galatia and then went down to Jerusalem to say, we've got to sort this out. 
because there are Jewish people claiming to be believers that are unevangelizing people. Gone through teaching them to renounce their faith, to turn away. And we'll find out a little more as we get to it. I don't want to give the key issues away yet. He wrote it from Antioch just after he finishes that first missionary journey. Just before the Jerusalem Council. So turn to Acts chapter 15 since your Bibles probably are still at 14. And Acts chapter 15 verse 1 tells us the issue, the controversy that Paul is discussing in Galatians. Acts 15.1 And certain men came down from Judea, that is, they came to Galatia, and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Notice it doesn't say according to the law of Moses. The word custom means man-made rules and regulations. So they're telling the Gentiles that Paul taught you wrong. You can't be saved by faith. Salvation is by circumcision. That was Jewish theology then. It's Jewish theology in the Talmud. That if you're circumcised, you're saved. If you're not circumcised, you're not saved. So they go to the churches in Galatia and say, wait, wait, wait. Paul was wrong. You guys thought you got saved, but you didn't. If you want to be saved, you got to get circumcised. You got to earn your salvation through works. Is that what the Bible teaches? It's not what the Bible teaches. And that's why we have the controversy in the book of Galatians. Of course, we know how the Jerusalem Council resolves it. Verse 8, Acts 15. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made, distinction, made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So the issue of the book of Galatians is how does one get saved? Is it by faith or is it by works? And now we know why the issue arose. Because the Jewish people didn't like all these Gentiles getting saved. Why? Why would it make them jealous? They consider themselves uniquely special. The chosen ones, right? He's our God. What does the Shema say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. one. So the purpose of Galatians, the reason Paul wrote it, is to refute the doctrine of salvation by works. To win back the converts, to get them to realize that Paul had taught them correctly. And they really had come to faith in God. And that by having received the Holy Spirit, they should have known better than to listen to these false teachers. And thirdly, to explain salvation by faith in much more clear terms. 
It's important for us to be reminded that Paul was not his given name. His name was Saul in English, Shaul in Hebrew. Shaul means what? Requested or prayed for. Was it the tribe of Benjamin? Paul was his Roman name. He was born at Tarsus in Cilicia of Jewish parents. His father was a Pharisee. But he was also a Roman citizen. So Paul was born as a Roman citizen. If you remember in the book of Acts, the centurion says, hey, I had to buy my citizenship. Paul says, yeah, but I was born a citizen. So Paul was Roman by birth, but he was also a Pharisee like his father. And had learned at the feet of whom? Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel. In Israel, there were two big schools of the rabbis. Everybody go two. It's not peace, it's two. The school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. The great teacher, the one who was correct on almost all the doctrine, was Hillel. Shammai, he, he didn't shine quite so brightly except in the area of marriage and divorce. So being taught by the grandson of Hillel, it was like having the best seminary education he could possibly have. I wouldn't say that, but I would say he knows the Torah better than 99.9% .9 of the other Pharisees even in Jerusalem. No, let's not put that on tape. Okay. With that in mind, let's turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 1. But I just wanted you to understand why people are coming through Galatia after Paul and saying, no, 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 you're not saved, you know. If, you're, if you get yourself circumcised, that is, if you convert to Judaism, now you can be saved. You can earn your salvation through the works of the law. Is that how we get saved? Absolutely not. So the first thing we need to know, it says Paul, we talked about that, his name's Shaul, but amongst Galatia, he will be known by his Roman name, Paul. He was an apostle. What's an apostle? A sent one. Hebrew is shaliach, a sent one. One who is sent on a mission. And the one who sends them on the mission is the source of that one's authority. So he says, an apostle not from men, nor through men, but through Yeshua the Messiah and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul's first point is, no man on earth sent me to you. I wasn't called out by Peter, Paul, James, and John and commissioned to be sent. It was God himself who sent me. So in whose authority did Paul come? He came in authority of the Lord himself, God above. When it says not from men nor through men, means he wasn't sent by them nor given their authority to take forward. But rather he's taken forth 
the authority of God. What does he mean by that? Let's go back to Acts chapter 9. And look how the Lord met Saul on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 through 30. I know it's a lot of background for one book, but I think it's good background. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What's a disciple? A student, one who learns from. And went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way. What was the way? That's what believers were first called because Messiah in John 14, 6 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the believers were first called the way. Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What's the significance of the fact that he's on his way to Damascus? He has to go through the north gate and walk right by the place where Messiah was crucified. Right by the very spot where Messiah was crucified. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. To get from Jerusalem to Damascus, what mountains do you have to cross? The Golan. The Golan Heights that you hear about in the news all the time. Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Shaul, Shaul, why are you persecuting me? Does he know where the voice is coming from? Let's read. Then he said, Who are you, Lord? Yep, he knows where the voice is coming from. The Lord said, I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What were goads? Then you poke on a sheep when it's not going and you want him to go. It's what? It hurts when you kick against it. That's right. So right now, our Messiah Yeshua is talking to Paul saying, I'm Yeshua. The one you're persecuting, you walked right by my crucifixion spot, site. Did you not notice? So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Paul gets kind of the same choice as Jonah, right? Go. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Why were they seeing no one? Because the voice was coming from heaven. Well, if Yeshua is speaking and the voice is coming from heaven, where's Yeshua? He's in heaven. Last time Paul saw him, he was in a grave. Mm. Then Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were open, he saw no one. What's that mean? Not just he doesn't see Yeshua, but he doesn't see the other men he was traveling with. Why? He's blind. Seriously, the Lord struck him blind. Then, 
and says, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Why did they lead him by the hand? He's literally blind. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. How long was Messiah in the grave? Three days. You think there's a relationship here, a correlation? Yep, of course there is. And Paul gets to think about it. Verse 10, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Hadani Adonai, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so he might receive his sight. Has Ananias heard of Paul? Oh, yeah. Is he terrified of Saul? Oh, yes. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Yeshua, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, God had given Saul a vision that a man named Ananias would come and do this very thing. Immediately they felt from his eyes something like scales. Oh, is this, it happened, but it was so symbolic. Why had Saul not recognized who the Lord was? Because he had something like scales upon his eyes. He had been taught wrong. And he had believed the wrong teaching. And it was something like scales that falls off his eyes and his sight is restored. He received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Wait a minute, here's this... Saul, that the synagogues were expecting him to come through and kill all the believers, and now he's preaching the risen Lord. You think this is going to have an effect on people? Yes, yeah, it's going to have an effect on people. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name of Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Yeshua is the Messiah. What did he use to prove? Did, did he have the book of Acts or the book of Romans? I forget. He had the Tanakh, the Old Testament. He had the prophecies. Look what God said in Isaiah 35. That the Messiah is going to what? Heal the blind. He's going to raise the dead. Make the lame walk. Loosen the tongue of those who can't speak. 
Messiah did this, 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 and this. Just check, 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 check. A thousand years before Messiah was born, God said he died by crucifixion. How, did, how was this man killed? Jews killed by stoning. And yet a thousand years beforehand, God knew Messiah would die by crucifixion. Does it impress you when you find something in prophecy that's prophesied just so long before it happened? And so accurately. In a book of Isaiah, God named Cyrus as the king of the Medes and Persians who will overthrow Babylon about 125 years before Cyrus is born. So his name, which kingdom he would rule over, and that he would destroy Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. In 1 Kings chapter 13, God names the king of Judah 400 years before he's named and says exactly what he's going to do, and it was exactly what the king did. Does that not impress you? That impresses me. So verse 23, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Why? Because he's preaching the gospel and people are coming to the Lord, and they don't like it. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. The disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. We're talking about Peter and James and John and those folks. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Yeshua. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Yeshua and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. All his ministry, Paul faced this, people trying to kill him, to shut him up. But the Lord was with him. Go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Verses 5 to 7. But the angel answered and said to the women, that is the women who come to the tomb to put anointed spices on the dead body of Messiah. But he's not there. They, the angel said, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Yeshua who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said. As he said means exactly as he said. He said three days and three nights. And on the third day he'd be raised again. And that's exactly how it happened. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold I have told you. So this is the same risen Lord. That the Paul met on the road to Damascus. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. We're up to verse 2. And all the brethren who are with me. Paul travels with Barnabas and with others. To the churches of Galatia. And I want you to note specifically that churches is plural. All those we read about in Acts chapters 13 and 14 were churches that were started by the Apostle Paul. 
Which one of them is being told that Paul taught him wrong? All of them. So he wants each and every one of them to study this letter. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace. Grace is a Greek greeting. Peace is a Hebrew greeting. So who is he talking to? All the believers in the church at Galatia, whether they were born Jews or Gentiles. Grace you in peace from God the Father and our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Who gave himself for our sins. What does that mean, who gave himself for our sins? He died for us. He died for us. He died for the Galatians even. And that's what Paul taught him in his first missionary journey. So he wants them to know that I'm not just coming on my own accord, but the Lord sent me the same Lord who died for you. The same Lord who paid the price for you. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Apostle Paul's just said, the Lord died for our sins. He explains that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, God, made him Yeshua, our Messiah, who knew no sin to be sin for us. That is, he took our sins and put him upon our Messiah, Yeshua. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So did God put our sins upon Messiah so that we could then walk in more sin? No. But that we should walk in righteousness. Well, that's New Testament, Wayne. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah 53. Did God tell us 700 years before Messiah was born that he was going to die for the sins of others? It's in Isaiah chapter 53. What two chapters of the Bible are never in the Jewish readings? The Torah and half Torah readings, Isaiah 53 and Daniel 7. You'll find out in a minute. Actually, I meant Daniel chapter 9. I said 7 tonight. I meant 9. Because Daniel chapter 9 tells us when Messiah would be born and why he would die. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 8. Surely he has borne our griefs. It's actually sicknesses. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded. That word wounded is what? Crushed. He was crushed for our transgressions. How do you get oil out of an olive? You put an olive press and crush it. Olive oil pictures the Holy Spirit. The Messiah was crushed so that the Holy Spirit could come forth for our benefit. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
crushed. He was pierced for us. He was crushed for us. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from, it says judgment, but it's actually justice. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off. What does it mean to be cut off? He was killed, cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So it tells us he died for the sins of others. And Daniel 9.26 does the same thing, which is why it's not in the... Torah, half Torah readings. Daniel 9, 26. Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is a prophecy about 77 year groups for a total of 490 years, but they are 77 year cycles. And verse 26 says, and after the 62 weeks, that word weeks is a cycle of years. So 483 years after the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So yes, the Old Testament prophets told us that Messiah would die, but it was for the sins of us because he had no sin. Let us go back to Galatians chapter 1. We're up to verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a simple statement. And yet, the more I cross-referenced it, the more information I found out about it. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 21. We'll start in verse 20 for context. We'll go to Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Yeshua from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you complete in every good work to do his will. Working in you what is well pleasing in his sight through Yeshua the Messiah. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's the difference between forever and forever and ever? <laughs> really, forever and ever just is simply a way to say it never, ever, ever will end. So Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and now will be in honor and glory throughout the Messianic kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, and eternity future without end. That's the same Messiah, Yeshua, who was crucified for you and me. He lives forever and ever without end. 
bearing the glory of God. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 11. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, meaning teach according to the Old Testament scriptures. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Yeshua the Messiah, to belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Messiah will not just bear the glory of God forever and ever, but the dominion forever and ever. What's the dominion? The ability to rule. What do we learn in Isaiah 9, chapter, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7? Of the increase of his government, there will what? Be no end. No end. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So who has the right to rule over this world? Yeshua does. Why? Because he has dominion. Because he died for us. Because he redeemed us. He redeemed all creation. Psalm 110 said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand so I make your enemies your footstool. Exactly right. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Hmm. In the book of Jude. What's that? Yeah, it comes right before Revelation. If you ask me what chapter in Jude, you don't know Jude. Verse 25. Jude was a half-brother of our Messiah, Yeshua, being the son of Joseph and Mary. To God our Savior. So who is Jude referring to as God? The Savior, which is Messiah. Remember Jude, who along with his mother tried to get Messiah to come away from the synagogues in Nazareth saying, hey, he's, he's a little touched in the head. Don't worry about him. <laughs> what happened? He met the risen Lord and said, oops, now I got it. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So Jude has come to realize that Yeshua was God incarnate. <laughs> Revelation 1.6. Right yep. 
Messiah has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How can God the Father have glory and dominion forever and ever if Messiah Yeshua, the Savior, is going to have dominion and glory forever and ever? Same, same. same. We're going to find that out the more we read in Scripture. Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. These are the raptured and resurrected saints singing praises in heaven before the throne of our Messiah. Revelation 5, verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Revelation chapter 7 verse 12. The angels, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and the raptured and resurrected saints just can't stop praising the Lord. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Hmm. What do you notice about Galatians chapter 1 verse 5? What's the last word of verse 5? Amen. Amen. That's not a Greek word. That's a Hebrew word. What would the Greek word be? It would be, they would have to use genoito if they're going to use an actual Greek word. Me genoito means essentially no amen. <laughs> so why would they just use the Hebrew word, I wonder? Mm, maybe so. Okay, back to Galatians. Meijanoito is M-E space G-E-N-O-I-T-O. Yeah, close enough. Yeah, whatever letters makes you say Meijanoito. Okay. Those were all New Testament. Let's look and see if the Old Testament agrees. Let's go to Psalm 72. The Old Testament and the New Testament must agree on all points. Yes. Why? If they were all inspired by the Lord our God and God does not change, then it must be consistent. Psalm 72 verse 19. 
and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Who's that written about? Blessed be the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord. The one who is in the New Testament referred to as the Lord Yeshua. Psalm 104, verse 31. Do you ever find yourself shouting at the television? <laughs> when you're listening to a Bible study and the preacher says something like, you know, God tried that. It just didn't work, so we had to come up with a new plan. Psalm 104, verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Both those words, Lord, are the tetragrammaton. That's the name carried forth as the Lord, but it refers to our Messiah, Yeshua. Let's go to Matthew 6, 13. Matthew 6, 13. We just saw it in the Old Testament. Let's see it in the New again. This is from what we call the Lord's Prayer, or some people call it the Model Prayer. And I got four red things out there. Let's see what they say. Uh-oh, somebody says, I missed the reference in Jude. Let me go back and see what it was. Jude verse 25. That is correct. Jude verse 25. Oh, oh, sorry. I didn't read the first part of the question. Never mind, I won't embarrass her. <laughs> she want to know which chapter of Jude. Okay. Matthew 6, 13. In the Lord's Prayer, some people call it the model prayer. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Who's the evil one? That's Hasatan, the Satan. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 Why does the scripture tell us over and over again that the Lord's power, honor, and glory is forever and ever? Yeah. God's met us, has he? Yeah. Romans 11.36 For of him and through him and to him referring to our Messiah Yeshua are all things to be glory forever. Amen. So these are really a, a I think so. I like to. Romans chapter 16, verse 27. Romans chapter 16, verse 27. To God alone wise be glory through Yeshua the Messiah forever. Amen. And the last one. 
Ephesians 3.21. I was just impressed by just how often the scripture told us that God's power, his dominion, his glory will never, ever end. Ephesians 3.21. To him be glory in the church by Messiah Yeshua to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Oh, that one includes something so very important. When will there stop being generations of people? There never will be. What's that? After the new heaven's new earth. The generations will continue. Did God promise in Exodus chapter 20 that his mercy would be to a thousand generations? That's at a minimum 40,000 years, and we've only had 6,000. So generations will continue. Yes, ma'am. So you're you're saying generations continue after we've left here? Yes, we who will be in our immortal bodies will not be having children, but there will be live human beings on the earth into eternity future. Prove it to me. Isaiah chapter what? Isaiah 65, I would have gone to 66, but we'll start in 65. Where would you like to start in 65? Ah, okay. Good point. What's that? Yeah, in Isaiah chapter 65, in verse 20, says, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. In other words, somebody who dies at 100 years old in the millennial kingdom will still be considered a child. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. That is, the only ones who will die in the millennial kingdom are those who are sinners. In verse 22 it says, for as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. How long did the olive trees live in Israel? There are some there in the Garden of Eden that are, I'm sorry, <laughs> the Garden of Gethsemane that are over 2,000 years old. That's right. But then in Isaiah 66, verse 22, it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before you, says the Lord, so shall your descendants, plural, and your name remain. So there will be live people in their mortal bodies that survive the millennial kingdom and go into eternity future, and they will continue to have children, but they will be without sin. And Susie asks, in our new immortal bodies, will we be like the angels? The answer to that is yes. We won't marry or be given in marriage. We won't be having children. But there will be live people. Why did God create Adam and Eve? To multiply, but to worship worship him, but to take care of the earth, right? And what are are the people going to do through eternity? They're going to take care of the gardens on earth. And we're going to reign. We're not going to be taking care of it. Right. We will be in immortal bodies. We're different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Back to Galatians chapter 1. I would tell you more about what life's going to be like in eternity if the Bible told us more. Something to look forward to. 
We're in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, except I have a question here. Let's see, what is it? Yeah, the angels back in um, Genesis chapter 6 had feelings for human women because there are no women angels. So in heaven, we will be like the angels. We won't be male and female. We'll just have to wait and see exactly what the bodies are like. In fact, isn't that what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15? We'll have to wait and see what our bodies will be exactly like. But they'll be like the Lord's body. Did the Lord eat fish? He did. Yes. But did he pass through walls? He did. He did that too. I can't wait to do that. Can you call that 1 Corinthians what? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I mean, yeah, me too. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel. What's the word marvel mean? I'm astonished. I'm stupefied. Which is kind of like made stupid, but not quite. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from whom who called you in the grace of Messiah to a different gospel. Which is not another. Because there is only one gospel. But that's what he means. But the gospel. That's where I thought we should take a few minutes and talk about what is the gospel. Many churches will say the gospel is that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. That's a part. But that's not the whole gospel. Let's go look and see what the Bible says. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. I might even want to go to Matthew 3. Let me think about that. Let me turn it on. I gave you permission. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now we'll go to Matthew 4, like I said. Verse 23. In, John, in Matthew chapter 3, John, John preached what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 4, Messiah, after he defeats Satan, preaches, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. But in Matthew 4.23, it uses the word gospel. And Yeshua went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. If the gospel is Yeshua was crucified, buried, and resurrected, would they have a clue what he was talking about three and a half years before his crucifixion? His disciples didn't know up to the day he was crucified. They didn't understand. Yeah. So if Messiah was teaching the gospel of the kingdom, as soon as he was baptized... Three and a half years before he dies, that's not the entirety of the gospel. Right? The Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected. There must be more to it. And then go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Remember, it was called in Matthew 4, the gospel of the kingdom. And that's important to understand what the gospel really and truly is. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Then Yeshua went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, 
healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So the gospel must include the fact that the kingdom of God is coming. And how do you get to be a part of it? Can't be walking in sin, right. The, it boils down to, it's always been from the time of Genesis forward, salvation is by faith. How do we enter into the Messianic kingdom? By faith. So that was not a new concept as the apostles went around teaching salvation by faith. That's the way it always was. But the Pharisees had corrupted it had made it something different. Messiah came to correct our understanding. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. In the 40 days of repentance, he was crucified, right? My daughter and I are trying to, and my granddaughter, trying to grasp a picture of what exactly this looks like for us. What should we be doing during these 40 days other than just asking the Lord to forgive us of our sins? You should be periodically taking a look and saying, what am I doing? Have I repented of everything? Or have I held back some sins that I particularly enjoy I don't want to let go of? So it's a time of self-examination. Is our repentance complete? Show me my wicked ways. Matthew 24, 14. I want you to see that the gospel has not changed. Matthew 24 is about the day of the Lord, which is yet future. And Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom, that's the same gospel Mark was teaching, and John was teaching, and Messiah was teaching. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a wisdom to all the nations, and then the end will come. I point that out because some people say, well, the gospel was different back in the days Messiah was baptized because he hadn't been crucified yet. It changed after that. But it has not changed. Now let's go to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I've got people signing off. I think I'm offending some people, but I'm not trying to. Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And when there had been much dispute, the dispute is between how are we saved? Are we saved by faith? Are we saved by circumcision? When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter says he taught Cornelius' house what? The gospel. So let's turn back to Acts chapter 10 and ask, what did he teach them? Go back to Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34.
Then Peter opened his mouth. Here's where he begins to preach the gospel. And said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. What does that mean, no partiality? No favoritism between Jew and Gentile. That it's not that Jews have a special save status that Gentiles are not privy to. But that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, here we go, Jew or Gentile alike, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Or break it down, those who come to him by faith repent of their sins and walk uprightly before God. They are accepted by him. That is the essence of the gospel message. That you must come to God by faith. You must turn away from your sins and walk in God's ways. Salvation by faith. But what does faith produce? We're saved to be obedient, saved to righteousness. Keeps going. Verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Yeshua the Messiah, he is the Lord of all. What's that mean? Lord of Jew and Gentile alike. Same Lord, same God, which means same gospel. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. What baptism did John preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And yes, that's a good translation, tree. And God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly. Do you see, we've not changed topics. When you repent and turn to God, what atones for the sins that you have committed in the past? The blood of our Messiah Yeshua that he shed for us in Calvary's tree. That covers over the sin and takes that sin away. So we can now walk anew in righteousness. Verse 40, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Ghosts don't, Ghost don't eat or drink. No. To him whom all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. What does it mean, whoever believes in him? Whoever has faith. So what's step number one? Faith. Then repent. Be baptized and walk in newness of life. Walk in obedience. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. (coughs) 
Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also for the Greek, meaning the Gentile. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Romans 15, verse 19. Yes. Back in Acts 10, 43. It says, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Present participle, continuing action. So if you continue to believe, you receive Right. And every time we see a phrase like that, it's going to be a participle, which means continuing action. We're going to get to some verses in here that use the word if, if you continue. So what does that mean for you if you stop believing? If you stop believing, that means you have gone off the path as Paul warned of those who misunderstand Paul. Romans 15, 19. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, in other words, in Galatia, I have fully preached the gospel of Messiah. What verb is that fully preached? Plurao, same as Matthew 5.17. Did Paul abolish the gospel of Messiah? No. Because that's not what that word means. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me watch the clock. I've got to be careful. I plan to get through two chapters today. <laughs> may not make it. Yeah. And you're right, it was from Of Mice and Men by Robert Burns. Okay. First Corinthians fifteen. Start in verse one. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, and in which also you are saved or are being saved. And then there's that word if. You hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Meaning, unless your faith was not real. If your faith is real, it will continue. You know, and that seems to be like why Paul is getting straight to the point in Galatians. He that seems to be like why Paul's getting straight to the point in Galatians because he knows if you stop believing... And that's what those other people are trying to get you to stop doing, is to stop believing. And Paul knows that that will take you right off the path to heaven and put you back on the broad road to destruction. Verse 3, 4, Because I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. What does according to the scriptures mean? As it was prophesied. That he was buried, that he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
that he was seen by Cephas. Who's that? That's Peter. Then by the twelve. Why is Paul going over this point? There's many witnesses who saw it happen. He wants to make sure that they do not begin to question, did it really happen? But that they stay strong in their faith, rooted in their faith, immovable. Verse 6, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. He said, if you don't believe me, there's hundreds of people you can talk to. After that he was seen by James, that's his half-brother than by all the apostles. Up to that point, James wasn't a believer. But having a conversation with the resurrected Lord changed his mind. Then last of all, he was seen by me also. That is in Acts chapter 9. We read about it earlier. As by one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles. And I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Messiah is preached and he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? They claim to be believers saved by faith. And they don't believe in the resurrection. What are they saved for? That's what Paul's saying. <laughs> Keep reading. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Messiah is not risen. See, they come out of the sect of the Sadducees, and the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. So here they are claiming to be believers, believing in Messiah. And he says, wait a minute, but you don't believe in resurrection. It says, if Messiah is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. He's trying to get them to realize, yes, there is resurrection. The Messiah was resurrected, and Paul knows because he's met the man. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Messiah, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, the Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Meaning what? You were never saved in the first place. If Messiah wasn't resurrected, then our sins were not forgiven. Verse 18, then also those who fall asleep in Messiah have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Messiah, we are of all men the most pitiable. But, all that before that was if. It says, but now Messiah is risen from the dead. And has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. All means all, saved or not. But each one in his own order. Messiah the firstfruits, afterward those who are Messiahs at his coming. Then comes the end. The end of what? This is the goal, the telos, the coming of the kingdom. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. 
For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. You cited Psalm 110.1 a few minutes ago. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. When he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he put all things under him is accepted. Yeah, that was kind of obvious. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him and put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That was a long reading, but it was to say this. We may have repented and turned from our sins, but we still must have those sins paid for. Do we take an animal to the synagogue? No. Messiah's death on Calvary's tree when he died for us. That's why that's part of the gospel message. The gospel is that salvation is by faith. And it includes faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah to be our redemption. To be our salvation. We still have a couple more minutes for a few more cross-references. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 4. 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 4. This relates to the Galatians issue. For if he who comes preaches another Yeshua and we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. What's he mean? There's only one Yeshua. There is only one Holy Spirit. There is only one gospel. And in Galatia, they've tried to preach something else as the gospel. That salvation is something earned by the works of men's hands. Through circumcision and other things. That's not the gospel. And Paul warns people all out throughout his missionary journeys that there is no other gospel. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. It says, you have been reconciled, holy and blameless, if, verse 23 is the if, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul's warning the other churches too that there are false teachers out there teaching a different gospel, a different way of salvation which is not the gospel. It is not the way of salvation. It is a way to mislead people, to lead them to the lake of fire. Go to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 8. 
What is the consequence of believing a different gospel that's not gospel? Verse 8 says, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Yes, ma'am. You say, do not obey the gospel. Right. Do not obey the gospel. Yes, if you believe that salvation is other than salvation by faith, you have not believed the gospel. You have not obeyed the gospel, which is believe, be saved. Where well, we've run out of time, we'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, continuing in verse 6. But the point Paul is trying to make to Galatians and to the other churches round about is there are false teachers teaching that you must earn your salvation through works. And that's not possible. Salvation is by faith, and it's always been by faith. As we finish the cross-references, we're going to find that the gospel was preached to those in the wilderness as they came out of Egypt. And yet they didn't get to enter the promised rest because of what? Because of disobedience based on a lack of faith. Salvation's always been by faith. It's never been by anything else. Galatians addresses how are we saved. That's Romans chapters 1 through 5. Not what do we do once we get saved, which is sanctification. But that will have to wait for next time.